This is the Horse Radio Network. What a beautiful day for horses in the morning. You are listening to the number one horse podcast in the world. Here's your entertaining look at the horse world and the people in it. Coach Jen in Ocala, Florida. And I'm Mary Kitzmiller from Kemp, Texas. And you are listening to Horses in the Morning on the Horse Radio Network for January 11th. I believe this is episode 2849. Good morning, Horse World. What is your favorite day of the week? You never stop learning. You never stop understanding. It's more in depth than just riding a horse knowing that for the rest of my life I could work on this and, and I'll never stop learning. Welcome back, Mary. Mary Kitzmiller is here the second Thursday of every month where we get to geek out on all things training. And if you're not a training buff and you go, oh gosh, training shows, they're so boring. Mary does it a little different. It's just chock-a-block full of creativity and outside-the-box thinking and fun when it comes to training with Mary Kitzmiller. So welcome back to the show. This is the part where we talk about your annu- your monthly training tip. So first of all, what's your training tip and what inspired it? Because there's always something. So we're going to talk about um, something that's known in the horse behavioral science world as micro-shaping. And pretty much that's a fancy word for taking a complex behavior and breaking it down into little bite-sized chunks so that both your horse and you can understand how something works better. And you're going to eliminate all sorts of confusion and all the crazy things that horses do that make us scratch our heads or get really frustrated. Um, and it's it's the way to teach pretty much everything. All right. So micro-shaping. Um, give us an example of a skill that a horse might have that required sh- micro shaping to get there. Um, so the, I think a really big skill that people uh, have a lot of problems with and almost every horse probably needs to learn how to do at some point in its life is lunging. Um, and we all have our reasons for lunging a horse. Sometimes it's to quote unquote, get the fresh out where, you know, like Remy the other day, it was really cold, and I know he likes to throw in little tiny baby bucks that he thinks are extremely impressive. Um, and so I like to get him out on the lunge line and just let him go a little bit and and, and get have his fun, and then I get on and ride. And um, we can use lunging in preparation for starting our horse under saddle or just warming up their muscles and getting them. Go- I mean, there's a million reasons to lunge. Uh, most people like to like to do it with their horses. And uh, there's actually a question on this as well. Uh, someone's got a young horse that uh, they're teaching to lunge and uh, the horse rears up and is really goofy at the end of the lunge line, which I'm actually working with a client now who has this um, nabstrupper. I don't know if I pronounced that right. It's a warm blood mare who's like a million feet tall Um She's, I don't know, she's probably 17 hands wow. and yeah, um, she might not. I'm, I'm so used to little roly poly Mustangs that anything <laughs> over 14 to, to me looks like they're 18 hands, but it's a really tall horse. 
and she's really goofy and we we're dealing with the same thing. The owner um, is really good, really thorough with her horses, but this is a lot of horse and she's too nervous to even lead the horse outside the turnout pin, uh, let alone teach lunging. And the few times I've worked with the horse in the round pin, try to get her feet moving, rears up in the air. It's really scary. And you're like, what do I do? So the rearing is something that can be overcome if instead of trying to get your horse to just lunge, we think about what lunging is. So if I were to ask a lot of people, and this is the way I thought of lunging, okay, tell me what lunging your horse is. You're like, well, you just move your horse around you in a circle at the end of the line, you know, trotting or cantering or even walking. And we tend to teach it to our horses that way. And so we're trying to tell our horse, I want you to go around me in a circle. And a lot of times the horse does anything, but they either try to run away or they get way too close to us uh, or they'll make like a kind of weird egg shape where they're too far away on one side. Really good eggs. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so like if let's say the, the barn is to your back. So on the, uh, you know, when the horse is coming by, they dive bomb you, um, on one side and then pull on the other side, um, or the horse won't go or they go too fast or they become airborne. And it's like, you're flying a horse kite. And the thing is horses don't really understand the concept of circle. Um, they did not take geometry and, if you really think about what lunging is, you want your horses to be doing tons of things. So they have to be going forward, but not too close to you, but not too far away from you. And you don't want them to turn their head to the outside of the circle because they're going to drag on your lunge line. You want them to look into the circle. But if they look into the circle, they might get too close. So they need to keep their shoulders up and their rib cage bent. They need to be going forward, but not too fast. They need to be relaxed as they're moving forward. So there's like a whole bunch of different elements to lunging. And I really figured this out um, to an extreme sense when I was uh, working on teaching my horse to do liberty circles and I was using positive reinforcement training. I love positive reinforcement training uh, or clicker training because it makes me think in terms of micro shaping, in terms of breaking things down into little itty bitty steps until both you and your horse are on the same age. And so when I had to think about, okay, I want my horse to go around me in a circle. Um, I had to think, what's the first thing I need him to do? And because I was doing this at Liberty, I had to be very specific with how I needed him to do this. So I thought, well, he's standing and facing me right now and he's really close to me. Like I can reach out and pet his forehead. So I don't want him to go now because he's he's way too close. The circle will be too small. So I had to teach him to back out of my space. So I worked on that um, several times. I just had him back up, click, treat, back up, click, treat, back up, click, treat. At the end of that backup, I'd have him come back to me so we could practice it again. So we just played this game of back up, come forward, back up, come forward, back up, come forward. And you know, I rewarded each of those steps, back up, click, treat, come forward, click, treat, back up, click, treat. And then I made sure I had cues that, you know, that said, this means when I do this with my hands, this means back up. When I do this with my hands, this means come forward. And we did that until there was no confusion. He was just doing, he looked like a little horse yo-yo, back up, come forward, back up, come forward. So now I've got him to successfully and easily back out of my space. But 
I, we can't lunge yet. We can't do a circle yet because he's facing me. So if he were to, if I were to say, horse, I need you to go forward, but he's facing me, he's going to come forward at me, isn't he? Um, or at the very least, he's going to kind of dive bomb in too close. So I really need to work on the shoulders and get the shoulder to step away. So I need him to do a 90 degree turn towards his outside so that he's facing the correct way on the circle. So I would have him back up and then I would have him move his shoulder over. And um, uh, let's, you know, let's say we're working on the left circle. So I need to move him to move his shoulder to the right 90 degrees. So now his head is facing to the left. So he's exactly where I need him to be. He's got a good distance away and he's faced the direction he needs to be on the circle. So we practice that over and over again. So I'd have him back up, move his shoulder and then I'd have him come back in, back up, move his shoulder, come back in, back up, move your shoulder, come back in, until he would just swing that shoulder nice and easily and, and beautifully to where, you know, he just opened that shoulder up, he's faced the correct way on the circle. Good. Okay. So what's the next step? Well, now we can go forward, can't we? Because he's faced correctly. He's a good distance away, so I'm not in any danger of him running into my space or kicking out and me being collateral damage. So... Then what I started to do is have him back up, move that shoulder, now go forward. And I wouldn't have him go forward very far. I just wanted to get him to start the circle. Um, so back up, move your shoulder, go forward a little bit. Back up, move your shoulder, go forward a little bit. Back up, move your shoulder, go forward a little bit. So now that he knows to back away a good distance, move that shoulder and go forward, what's the next problem I'm going to have, especially if I'm doing this at Liberty? Well, if he were to just keep going forward, he'll just go off into oblivion because he doesn't, He, like I said, he doesn't understand the concept of circle. He doesn't know what a circle is. I have to teach him what a circle is. So what I did at Liberty, um, you could do the same thing on the line, is I would have him back up, move the circle, go forward, and then I used a cue at Liberty to have him look at me as he's going forward because if they're looking at you, they're going to stay kind of hooked onto you. So if I were to do this on the lunge line, I would I would just kind of tip his nose to me, and then I could re release and reward for that. Um, typically, what I do when I'm teaching lunging is I will actually have them I will tip their nose and have them completely yield their hindquarters to the outside, so they actually end up facing me again, and that really exaggerates what I'm going to want to ha happen later. When I have a horse lunging. I'd like his hindquarters to be uh, just slightly to the outside. I want him to really step that inside hind leg up under his belly, and I want him to be looking at me. So it's kind of like the very start of a hindquarter yield. So I exaggerate it in the beginning. I have him go forward a little bit, and then I have him yield in face. And what this does, especially for a horse that's more prone to kind of wanting to run off and really pull on you, um, is you're letting them know, hey, you're not going to go very far before I have you stop. And when a horse like that, I know um, Carly, one of our otters, uh, has had this issue with a Mustang she's working with. Any kind of pressure that he feels, if he sees something off in the distance, his thing is just to tense up and run off, which can be incredibly dangerous. So what I do with those kinds of horses is I don't let them go very far and I have them disengage and face me. And when they face me, I treat it like they just won the Olympics. I will pet on them, love on them, give them a big break, give them a cookie. I want them to know 
Hey, giving me your attention is amazing. And it's the best place in the whole world. You're not going to find your answer running away. You, If you're ever uncomfortable, you look at me. And if you look at me, you're gonna, good things are going to happen. We're going to have good feelings and cookies and love and breaks and treats. So I teach every horse how to do that, but I really exaggerate it with those really hot and fiery horses, especially horses that have managed to drag the lead rope away from people before. This is very, very important. Yeah, once once that happens one time, it gets to be a habit in a hurry, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. The magical rule with horses as a general rule is three. You can let them get away with something up to three times and it's still, you're still okay. You can fix this. After three, now you got an issue. With mules and donkeys, it is one. <laughs> That's <laughs> all you get. You cannot mess up. Um, and Mustangs tend to kind of be more toward the mule and donkey side of the spectrum. They are incredibly concerned with their safety. They want to make sure they're safe. And if they find that safety by breaking away from you once, they're like, okay, that's my go-to. I've got it figured so you out. have to yeah. be, yeah. So, so I, I really exaggerate that a ton. Go forward a little bit, shut down, go forward a little bit, shut down. Um, and on a horse like that, I almost want them to take a few steps and then look at me like, are you, are you sure you want me to keep going? That's, that's, I want them to constantly be thinking, oh, she might ask me to do something. So I better pay attention. Um, your more lazy horses have trouble moving forward. I will let them go a greater distance and then shut them down. So I do that over and over. And I'll, I'll start to practice this both ways. Back up, move your shoulder this way, go forward, shut down. Um, back up, move your shoulder that way, go forward, shut down. So you're just building these little sections of circles. So it's like a little tiny pie slice of the circle. And you're making this into little bite-sized chunks that your horse can understand. And so as they kind of figure that out, I let them go forward a few more steps, yield those hindquarters, a few more steps, yield those hindquarters, a few more and a few more. And pretty soon I will have an entire circle. And um, it doesn't take as long as you might think. And by doing it this way, you can eliminate almost every kind of issue that you might be having with your horse because you're only asking, I'm just asking for this little tiny bit at a time. And each time your horse does it, you're, re you're rewarding him either with a release of pressure or if you're using positive reinforcement training, you can mark the behavior, give him a treat or scratch his neck or whatever you want. It, it's so important. I don't think we do this enough. And myself, I catch myself not doing this enough of telling your horse, that's it. You're doing good. Because if you're trying to get this huge, I think it, lunging is somewhat advanced because even in just talking about this, you can see how many little things have to be working for your horse to go around you properly in a circle. And if you just try to get it all done at once and your horse is getting literally no encouragement for doing something great, he's going to figure out his own way to find and reward and, and, you know, that feeling of safety. And so, um, it's really important. And, and the general rule with micro shaping, and this is what I learned through positive reinforcement, because a lot of the people who use positive reinforcement training kind of want to stay in that quadrant of training of just entirely reward based training. I use I use a, me a a lot of different methods to get my horses to work with me, but when you sort of take away 
you know, I'm not going to punish my horse or I'm not going to use this kind of pressure or this kind of pressure. And you only have, I'm going to reward what I like and ignore what I don't like within reason. Um, then you have to break it down. And if it doesn't work, then the answer is break it down more. And if it still doesn't work, then the answer is break it down more. So I've had horses, my horse Dougal, he's a big drafty Mustang. His grandpa must have been a Belgian horse or something. And he is not sensitive at all. I have done jumping jacks in front of him, waving tarps like a maniac, and he will maybe flick his ears at me. Um, He's very quiet. So to teach him to back was almost impossible. And I found myself feeling like I was going to have to add too much pressure to get him to back. And I didn't want to do that because he's the type of horse that'll just shut down. And when they hit that point, you could just wail on them and they're not going to back up. Of course, I don't want to do that. And I don't want to, I don't want to overuse pressure and be too aggressive. So what do I do? Well, I can't even get him to back one step. What the heck am I going to do? So I started rewarding him when he even thought about when when it looked like he was maybe thinking about backing so like he might lean back a half an inch I rewarded it like it was the biggest deal in the whole world like let's just if you can lean back I'll be so happy and then I got him to lean back a little bit more and then I got him to lean back a little bit more and then a magical thing started happening he leaned back so much that one of his feet lifted off the ground and oh my god I treated that like he had just you know he just won a gold medal and now he will come up to me and if I don't automatically acknowledge him, he starts backing up like, look at this thing that I do. You know, he's so proud of himself. Whereas it could have easily gone a different way if I if I hadn't thought to break it down, break it down, break it down. I could have ended up in, in a mess with this horse of using too much pressure and him learning to ignore that much pressure. Now I can't get him to back up, you know, for nothing. Yeah, yeah. And backing up is another one of those skills that every horse has to have. But it is amazing how often a simple chain over the nose is resorted to, which is really not ideal under any circumstances. Um, And I'll do this one really quick because we have to get a hold of our guest today. With Scooter, the hackney pony, he's a serious little alpha pony. He doesn't do anything that's not his idea, including backing up. And he's already very into pressure, even more so with his head and face because Before we got him, he was tethered to a dog chain in somebody's front yard, and he wasn't fed. So in order to survive, he had to pull really, really hard on the object on his face. So for him, that does not represent a cue of any kind. So with him, I really struggle with that. And one of the things I do with Nigel, my thoroughbred that I ride, is whenever we leave our riding area, pasture or arena, we always stop and back out the gate and then close the gate behind us. It helps him with that tendency horses have to drift towards the gate. I pony scooter a lot. So we combine those two. It's like, okay, I pony scooter, but I have to back out the gate and close it, but here's scooter. So at first what I do is I take scooter over and I I dally him to a fence post and then do my thing. And Well, wait a minute. Scooter can help me do this. So, because Nigel's gotten to the point now where he's really good at it. He knows the routine. He goes over to the gate. He pretty much does it automatically now because you do it every time you ride. So I positioned Nigel at the gate. So the gate was open to the inside and it's in a corner and the gate is on my left and scooter is also on my left. So it's gate, scooter, me. And we have to back up a step and then move to the right, pivot right one step, back one step, pivot right one step in order to get the gate closed. 
Nigel is very motivated to do this because A, he gets a cookie, and B, he gets to go back to the barn. Scooter also gets the cookie on our way back to the barn because we leave the thing and that's what we do. So he was also motivated. He's going, oh, this is where we go through the gate and we get cookies. And it wasn't but two times that he figured out how to back up because he had to go wow. to the scooter to get that cookie. I didn't do anything except place him there. And he couldn't go anywhere else because there was a fence on one side and giant 17-hand Nigel on the other side. And after he did that two or three times just on his own, trying to earn that cookie, I started adding a vocal command to it. Vocal commands are very comfortable for Nigel, or Scooter, because he's a driving pony. So his life is vocal commands, not leg aids. And by golly, if that didn't transfer pretty darn directly to in harness and in hand. So when I need him to back up when he's on lead rope, I can now use the command to back and I get a back. Whereas before it was, it was an absolute battle. I was waving my arms, jumping up and down, threatening to beat him in the face, which of course I know I'm never going to do, but he doesn't (laughs) take two steps back. Um, So Again, I broke it down into little chunks that he was like, oh, well, of course I take a step back because I have to stay with Nigel and there's a fence in my way. Well, of course I have to take a step over because Nigel went that way and I'm connected to him and I know I'm going to get a cookie in a minute. So I took something that he already knew and added to it. So yay us. Yay. That's awesome. That's really creative. There you go. We love to geek out on all things training. You're on Mary Kitzmiller show. And speaking of geeking out, Wanted to mention Total Saddle Fit, the sponsor of today's show. For Western riders and English, they have the products you need to make your ride more comfortable and help your tack fit its best. The perfect saddle pad for Western saddles, the shoulder relief cinch for Western saddles, and the new Stretch Tech shoulder relief cinch for Western saddles. They have a triangle of elastic in the center to allow your horse to breathe more freely. You can find all of these products and so much more at totalsaddlefit.com. And don't forget, Total Saddle Fit products come with a money-back guarantee, including shipping when you purchase direct from Total Saddle Fit, totalsaddlefit.com. I'm so happy to welcome to the monthly training episode with Mary Kitzmiller. Doyle Connor, who is chairman of the Florida Cow Culture Preservation Committee, which sounds like a big old mouthful. And the reason I found Doyle is they have this thing down here in Florida called the Great Florida Cattle Drive and Reunion Rides. And these rides happen a couple of times each year, not necessarily every year. And I'm gonna I wanted to have Doyle on here to talk about a, what the Preservation Committee does, and B, what these dr- drives are. So let's start out with A, what is the Florida Cow Culture Preservation Committee, and why do I care? <laughs> well, I can't answer the latter, but the former is uh, simply uh, in uh, 1995, Florida was going to celebrate its sesquicentennial, that is to say its 150th birthday. And those of us that were members of the Florida Cracker Cattle Association were thinking of ways we could um, celebrate, you know, Florida's birthday. And there in Ocala was a gentleman by the name of Dan Hightower who'd always wanted to do a cattle drive. 
and he was also a member of our Cracker Cattle Association, and he talked me into presenting to the board that we do a cattle drive for Florida's sesquicentennial to celebrate the history of of the cattle industry in Florida. Most people don't realize that the first cows and the first horses to ever step foot on what is now the United States of America landed in Florida in the year 1521 with Ponce de Leon on his second voyage to Florida. So we thought we would drive a thousand head of cattle across Florida to celebrate the sesquicentennial. Wait, 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 wait. A thousand? Yes, ma'am. Whole, okay, go ahead. That blo- mind blown, continue. And we did it, and we had uh, media coverage from all around the globe. We were on the front page of the Melbourne Times and the Tokyo News and, uh, you know, all over the world. I've seen pictures of my cattle drive, and all the all the letters underneath will be in Cyrillic, you know, from Russia and Bul- Bulgaria and other places. Um, but we did it, and we wound up. Uh, with a you know a wonderful committee putting together a wonderful committee of experienced people that that worked their butts off and we had the largest single event of Florida sesquicentennial and uh, and we patted ourselves on the back and said we did a good job and that was fun and we're never going to do it again because it was three years worth of just terribly hard work to put it together uh, but. Eight or seven or eight years later, uh, people started saying, hey, we ought to do it again because it's very selfish of us to have, to have done this and, and to hold it to ourselves and not offer it to, you know, another generation or all the folks that tell us every time we see them, dang, I wish I'd have gone on that thing with you. So we decided we'd, we'd try to do it and we would do it every 10 years. But it's, you know, it's been hard on a, a group of, 30 or 40 people, committee members, two years worth of planning for a a week's worth of doings. Uh, Then we decided after the last one in 2016 that since the year uh, 2021 marked the 500th anniversary of Florida's, uh, you know, being the birth of the cattle industry in America and the horse industry as well, that we really needed to do it this year. Well, you know, the plague hit us and, and everything was put on hold. So instead of doing it in 21, we're going to do it in uh, December 4th through the 10th of 20, 2022. And we're going to drive another thousand head of cattle. We're going to start off at the uh, Deseret Ranch, which is east of Orlando. And that is the largest uh, largest ranch east of the Mississippi, and it is home to the largest commercial cow herd in America. They have a wonderful history, and uh, we're going to go start there. We'll spend a couple of days on their place, work our way south to uh, to to and through some of Florida's you know most beautiful and uh, historic cattle ranches. Um, and wind up down at the little town of Kenansville at the Silver Spurs practice arena down there for what we call our frolic, which will be music and history, and everybody can watch the cows come in and 
and we'll have you know whip makers and spur makers and saddle makers and people of uh, doing crafts of the period. So the Florida Cow Culture Preservation Committee works year-round to do just that, preserve the history and the interest in uh, the cattle culture, the cowboying that's taken place in our state and only our state for 500 years. So when you do the Great Florida Cattle Drive, first question is, how do you come up with a 1,000 head of cattle, and are they... Historically correct cattle, or is it whatever cows you can get? No. No, they have to be uh, Spanish-type cattle. That would include uh, our cracker cattle, you know, which we've, we've been Describe cracker very cattle. actively. Describe cracker cattle. What do they look like? Crack, cracker cattle are direct descendants of the Spanish, the Spanish Andalusian cattle brought here in the 15 and 1600s. Uh, they are genetically tested direct descendants. Wow. Uh, um, so what, what does one look also, like to the average Joe that would see one? What would he see? Like a little longhorn or Corriente cattle, rope and steers. Okay, so they're... They use cracker cattle a lot for rope or steers, but they're heavily horned cattle. So they are big, giant the, longhorns that are going to poke me. Okay, I've got that. But they're... They, they they're, really don't. The, the, crack, the, the longhorn cattle, you've got to remember for... Many, 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 many generations, the people out in Texas have bred longhorn cattle selectively to get those longhorns. Mm-hmm. If they'd if they'd have just been left in the brush, uh, they'd pretty much look like what our cracker cattle and Corriente cattle do, mm-hmm. um, which is a, a, a horn that comes out and sweeps forward because these are these are the basics of the Spanish fighting bulls. So they're they're not built to go out for pretty. They're built to go forward for protection. Gotcha. So you've got your cattle. Now, are there, obviously there must be, there are commercial breeders here in Florida who still breed this type of cattle commercially. Therefore, you have them available to make this drive. They, they almost, we almost bred them out of existence trying to, quote, improve them. Yeah. Which is, 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 uh. So my father and a bunch of other Florida cattlemen decided that they wanted to preserve the cattle that their fathers and grandfathers had used to make a living, and they did. They started the Florida Cracker Cattle Association, the Florida Cracker Horse Association, and we've gone from being the the third most endangered domestic species in America to a... Uh, a breeding book that has about 6,000 registered cattle in it now. So we've, we've turned the corner while they're still, uh, you know, the, the, the genetics are still rare. They, they at least are, you know, are no longer looking towards extinction. No longer endangered. So that was my first question where you get the cows. How did you decide the route that you take on this, um, every 10 year ride? Well, it's changed a little bit, but basically it goes from, first it went from Yeehaw Junction north to Kissimmee. Then 10 years later, we could not do that because, you know, the last 10 miles into Kissimmee to the rodeo grounds in Kissimmee was all neighborhoods and it was built up, yeah. apartments and, and yeah. that sort of thing. So we, we reversed it and we started a little south of St. Cloud and, and went went south. We did that 
twice, and then now we're going to move east uh, with a new route. And uh, so it's, the it's going to be route, just. Is the route continuous, or do you have to occasionally take all the cattle and put them in a truck and move them to the next spot, or are you able to just keep them on the ground the whole way? Oh no, we just we just in this instance. Uh, we're going to drive 90 miles or so, and we only need the local law enforcement to stop traffic on 192 one time. That's it. The rest so of it's going to say... be on historic ranches. Wow. And so when you're going 90 miles, is this, uh, I might have missed this, but is this all in one day? Do you have to, do you camp out oh, with Lord, the cattle? No, 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 no. We'll, we'll <laughs> I was about, about to say, I'm not sure that We'll average about 10 miles a day. The first, in 1995, we had 1,000 head of cattle. We had about 40 head of the guys that were cow hunters. They, are, they were to take care of the cattle. Uh, and then we had 600 riders, both in wagons and on horseback, that were, were, were divided up into geographical groups. We called them wagon circles. So wagon circle number one was pretty much all of the people from out of, out of state and out of the country. We had people from all around the world in North Florida. And then region two was, you know, Gainesville, Ocala, and we had we had six six wagon circles, and each each day a different wagon circle got to come forward and drive the cattle. So everybody that went that wanted to actually got to go forward and drive, help drive a thousand head of cattle. Who's this nice? year, this year we're going to try to double that. We're going to try to let uh, each group come forward and drive the cattle twice during the drive, but it's. You're allowed to bring 60 pounds of stuff, and we will carry it from this camp to the next camp, and that's all you get. There's no campers. There's no trailers. There's no trucks. There's, there's just uh, we're making it as primitive as we possibly can. And it's, uh, you know, it's the adventure of a lifetime. Everybody that's ever been on it can't get together with anybody else that was on it and not talk about it. It just was amazing. We have teachers that teach the kids along the way. The kids all have to write his, historical uh, diaries for, for their classrooms. Um, and uh, each night we present a, a, a historical presentation from some some part of Florida's history from pre-Columbian to to the 1880s cow camps and whatnot, Spanish occupation, civil war. And, uh, and then we have poets and singers and storytellers and like you, myself. And you feed everybody. We feed, you pay us. And once you hit the trail, uh, you don't have to pay for, or ha we provide all the food for you and all the food for your critters. That right because otherwise because sixty pounds of gear that gets um, shut that does not include that does yeah. not include food and hay that's no right. and it doesn't include you whatever you can, <laughs> it doesn't include whatever you can put on your saddle either you know if you or your wagon if you take a wagon you know we'll take sixty pounds if you want but you can take two or three hundred if your horse can or team of horses can handle it so if you choose to do a well we'll start here part A. 
This isn't something where you can just show up in your pink polo wraps, um, modern riding breeches, and a rat catcher. There are rules and regs. You will, about you will how be you, you will be thir- <laughs> you will be thoroughly spanked. You would be thoroughly spanked should you try to do so. <laughs> talk to talk to us a little bit about what what you and your horse are required to wear and why. We request that you try to to dress as, as uh, authentically as possible to the 1880s. That's not mandatory, but that's what we request. Now, what is, you know, the things that are not allowed are baseball caps, T-shirts, you know, an inordinate amount of loud colors. You know, barrel racers now love a lot of dash and a lot of flash. Uh, we don't want that. We don't want that. We don't want that in our pictures, you know, because we're going to uh, last last time in 2016, we released the NPR. Uh, we did a documentary on the drive that was going on national public radio across the across the nation, and uh, you know, we wanted it as as correct to the time as possible, and we realize it's not possible, but. The, you know, we're going to do the best we can. Um, and I'm looking at the pictures and, and yeah, you know, it, it, I think if someone wants to do this, they're not going to have to break the bank getting reenactment gear, but just good functional Western clothing looks, looks pretty, yeah. you know, looks, looks good and adequate. And we'd rather, we'd rather we, you wear your beat up old work hat than your, the one you wear to funerals and rodeos. The <laughs> <laughs> I'm just laughing because only a true, genuine cowboy would could say the one you wear to funerals in a, with a straight face and and mean it in his heart of hearts. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that was a little intimidating to me at first when I was reading through what to wear, and then I dug a little deeper and went, "Oh, that's really not very far off the ranch wear that a genuine working cowboy would wear today." No, ma'am. No, we don't. But those there'll be a lot of like myself. I tend to wear old timey stuff. I'm I'm I got a. It was thirty something degrees here in Tallahassee this morning, so I've got a, a, a herringbone wool vest on, and a, a four by four a red what we call a wild rag scarf. I got a wild rag scarf around my neck, and I got a cowboy hat that I wear. I don't wear into my office but i wore it's in my car that's just what i wear this time of year and it's it's exactly what could be worn on on the cattle drive so um, if, if one would see one of the wagon participants what would I, what would i be seeing there well we've got we've got some folks that you know absolutely look like they were right out of the 1880s uh we got a lot of ladies that just you know, bust their butts to do it right. Um, but you know, cowboy hat, uh, denim, denim clothes or, you know, denim pants. And, uh, at that time of year, you know, a flannel shirt, just, just, you know, nothing, nothing, uh, uh, Hank Williams tassel shirt stuff. <laughs> Try not to do that. So, what about the vehicle, the the wagon itself? What would what would we might see? 
well, any wagon will be suitable. You know, we're not going to require it because it's going to be sandy. We're not, it's easier to, for your horse to pull a wagon with, with uh, pneumatic tires, mm-hmm. you know, car tires, mm-hmm. than it is with a, with a two-inch rim uh, that is historically correct, although there will be some, you know, a bunch that will be historically correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, there will also be some with rubber tires and whatnot, and we're not going to jump up and down about that. Uh, we're gonna have a we'll have a big wagon for for the uh, press and a big wagon for old timers. Oh, neat! Uh, and uh, I'm gonna jump you know, on the press if, wagon, Mary. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and then we'll try to have. We don't really allow other than the press. We don't really allow people to come in and out. You you start it and you finish it. Right, right. Well, um, yeah, that would be a logistics nightmare to have people coming and going. And 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 they there'll be people lost in the woods because a lot of these places we're going to camp you you you're not going to know how to get there. Yeah. I mean, very few people on earth would know how to get there. <laughs> so I'm um, I'm of course getting really excited about this, and I'm thinking, oh man, this might be something I want to do. My issue is um, I've only taken my horse on at most ten mile trail rides. So if I would, if I were wanting to get prepared for this next year, first of all, I, I assume it's possible to sign up and, you know, uh, what kind of conditions do you need to condition your horse to? Do you recommend more than one horse, uh, so that you no, switch ma'am. out horses no, during no, the ride? One horse should be a plenty cause we don't, the cattle aren't going to go and hence, hence the, the, the train, the cat, the wagon train. They're not going to go more than, you know, maybe, I think the most we've ever done was 13 miles in one day. That was the first mm-hmm. day of the first drive we ever did. And and we really did it to get everything and everybody, mostly the cows, tired, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that was, that was a long day. Um, but most eight, most of them are going to be 8 to 10 miles a day, which your horse can handle. The, the real problem is going to be, He's got to be used to, we're going to have, from the time people start getting, we're going to have wagons and, 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 and whatnot come driving around the camp the whole time. Cause the first year we did not do that. And, and, and city horses were just scared to death of wagons and mules <laughs> and, and even the cows. So now we expose everything to everything. Uh, and we haven't had many problems since, um, we do, and then you talked about and the trail rides. We do a trail ride of uh, initially it was kind of leaning towards participants, folks that had been on the cattle drive, you know, one or more, and it's called a reunion ride. We have it at the Florida Agricultural Museum in Palm Coast, just south of St. Augustine. Uh, there's thousands and thousands of acres, beautiful acres in there that we can ride, and we have. Uh, the last weekend in January, we have a trail ride just for everybody to, you know, and then that's one where you can bring your motor home and you can sleep in your, in your living quarters trailer and do all that kind of stuff. And we just, you know, we just get together and tell stories, ride horses, make music and have fun. So what I'm getting is if you want to participate in the cattle drive, which only happens once every 10 years or so. You, yes, ma'am. You need to be able to feel comfortable that you and your horse can camp, can remote camp. We're talking seriously remote. 
You can deal with a large number of cattle, a large number of horses you've never met before, and some banging, crashing mule wagons pulled by mules, um, walking through swamps with maybe knee-deep water here and there. So this is a for a, for a, for a mile or more. For yeah, a mile for, or more, and that, there'll, there'll be there'll be wet spots, boggy spots where you know. Old Salty better be broke, or he's going to be by the end of the day. Right. And as a native Floridian now, I've lived here for eight years, so I can call myself native. During, there you if go. You've, if you've had ra- lots of rain and in certain areas, you will be walking through water up to your horse's chest for three quarters of a mile or a mile. And like you said, even if horses don't like it, they get used to it real fast when it's like that. Well, that, that's the that's the one that's the one good thing about crowds, you know. That this my horse is going down there, and oh my God, I don't want to go through that creek. And then the horse on each side of him does, and so he says, "Oh hell, I'll do it." And away he goes. <laughs> and away he goes. So it's it's this is a significant adventure, not to be taken lightly. But yes, Mary, you need to come down and do this. Yes, um, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, I, I, I will guarantee you. That you you will be exposed to things you've never been exposed to. You will develop a relationship with your horse that you didn't think was possible. And and the same for people around you. Wonderful, salt-of-the-earth, cracker folks that many of them have done this every day of their life. And then some are, you know, lawyers from, from Miami that just wanted to have an adventure. You'll 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 meet people and make friends that that you will will cherish till the day you die, and you will also have put together memories that that will stay with you and you'll share with your grandchildren, if you don't bring your grandchildren. Oh, because that's if a good you, question. How if, how old does one have to if be? If you to do, uh, old enough to ride a horse. I think we we generally limit it to six or seven. Seven, I think it is. And you have to be able to ride independently. Yeah. Yeah. No. No. Or ride. Or 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 we we might make exceptions for those in wagons. There we go. That's a good point. Yeah. Cool. Well, I will put a link to the Florida Cattle Drive and Reunion Rides Facebook page in the show notes for today. And if you don't remember how to get to our show notes, if you just Google Great Florida Cattle Drive or Florida Cattle Florida Cracker Cattle Association, Florida Cracker Horse Association, all of those things you will find. These guys have great SEO. And Doyle, thank you very, very much for taking time out of your day today. This was a short notice. I called you yesterday and said, could you come on tomorrow for taking time out of your day and telling us all about this? And I'm excited all over again. Well, I, my lot in life is, is to share the history, Florida's Cracker culture and history and uh and i could i call it spreading the gospel of florida and thank you for helping my congregation grow well chatting with doyle was just about the most fun a person could have legally so if you're curious about the whole florida cracker cattle drive just google florida cracker cracker cattle drive and you're probably going to find it i'm going to continue to encourage mary to participate Yeah, I'm already making plans because that sounds super fun. Um, We will see if my Mustang, who's not a fan of water, will do it. But uh, yeah, we'll be practicing. Here's the scoop. Like he said, when you have when you're out there with a thousand cows and 
25 other horses. When everybody else walks through, they're going to walk through too. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny. Nigel, my horse, um, get him near a water jump. Oh my gosh. The light, the world is coming to an end. He becomes um, chicken little. But when we're out and about, if we come to a place in the woods, it's generally in the woods or in a brushy area where there is a naturally occurring body of water that is 15 acres. He doesn't hesitate and just strolls right through. Isn't that frustrating? Well, that's natural water. It's not that weird stuff with a jump near it. Oh, my God. Yeah, exactly. Just in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, a, a mud puddle on macadam. <gasps> Look out. But three acre, three acres of water that could possibly have alligators in it. Oh, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. All good. Well, speaking of training issues, it's time for Q and A. If you want to have a question answered by Mary, you need to be an auditor. What's an auditor? An auditor is someone who helps support Horse Radio Network programming via our Patreon. All you need to do is go to Horses in the Morning. And look for the auditor banner. It's usually on the right-hand side of the page to learn how to become an auditor. And what is our first question for today, Mary? Uh, we're going to do one from Carly. And it is, when do you know a Mustang is ready for the saddle? Um, great question. And I would say Mustang, domestic horse, any breed, it's the same to me. I've got a, I've got a little mental checklist that I do. Um, I want to make sure I have basic groundwork done, meaning I can control my horse's body parts. I can, can move those hindquarters, yield those hindquarters. I can get them to yield their shoulders. I want to be able to get them to back up. I want to be able to get them to move forward. They need to be soft on the halter. Um, so kind of basic forwards, backwards, left and right. Um, I want uh, some, I will have done some desensitizing exercises that will prepare them for the saddle. Uh, so anytime I get a, a colt I'm starting, every piece of groundwork I'm doing is telling the horse, hey, something like this is coming in the future. I just want you to be prepared. So um, I like to be able to throw a, uh, a long lead rope all over their body without them flinching. So around their legs, over their back, um, and, you know, the, they're, they're used to me throwing something at them that's soft and, and uh, they don't have any problem with that. Um, another exercise I will do with the lead rope that prepares them for the saddle is I will throw the lead rope over their back just behind their withers and grab the end of it. And so I wrap it around the horse just where the girth would go. And I should be able to move it up and down and actually pull on the end of the lead rope like I'm tightening a girth. And I I will work them up to where I can pull it as tight as I will adjust that girth. So they should be used to that. And I actually do that all up and down their belly, not all the way into the flank area, but uh, because my saddle has two cinches, uh, they need to be used to where that back cinch is going to go as well. Um, so that's something I definitely want to have done. I like to do a lot of flag work with my colts. So it's this little soft flag at the end of a um, uh, of a stick. Um, and I should be able to move it all around them and touch them just about anywhere on their body and they don't freak out. Um, uh, so that's something that I like to be able to have them to do 
they need to be able to move forward easily because to me, I haven't properly done my first saddling unless I can get that horse to move walk, trot, and canter with the saddle. And the reason that's incredibly important, and I've seen some wrecks uh, where this hasn't been done, um, you can get a horse to accept a saddle standing still and walking and trotting, but unless you've done those three gates, walk, trot, canter, um, they can... They, they, it, it can, the saddle can kind of sneak up on them and surprise them. And you don't want to have that happen in a non-controlled setting. So they need to be able to feel what that saddle feels like when they're moving through all of those gates. So when I put the saddle on a horse for the first time, even a horse that's really forward, that, you know, when you're wrapping these girths around the, the horse's belly, they tend to want to shut down a little bit and they don't want to move forward because it feels weird. So if I don't have that horse moving really well before the saddle, it's not going to work out for me when I do saddle them. It's going to be very difficult. So before I saddle them the first time, I need to be able to easily get that horse to move out into all three gates and, and he needs to be relaxed about it. I don't want him running off. And I need to be able to shut him down at all three gates because you never know when you saddle him for the first time. I've had times where I thought I got that saddle nice and snug and they go around half a circle and I see that saddle sliding and I realized I didn't do that girth up properly and I needed that horse to shut down right now so I can go fix it because the probably one of the worst things that you can have happen that first saddling is to have that saddle slip under their belly. That messes them up pretty bad in the mind. You know, you don't want that to happen. So just in case, you know, you have a, a girth break or you realize you need to adjust that girth or the horse has gone into quite a panic because they really are upset with the saddle. You need to be able to shut that horse down no matter what. So when I'm doing my groundwork, I teach my horse very gently how to yield at all three gates, but I will even do what's called a fire drill is what I call a fire drill where I will kind of rush that horse forward a little bit, like add just a little bit too much pressure and make sure I can shut them down. And I'm just preparing them. Hey, sometimes it's going to be too much. I'm going to try to prevent that from happening, but sometimes it's going to be too much and you're going to be a little nervous and I still need to be able to get you back to me. Um, you know, I don't want to lose that lead rope when they have that saddle on the first time. Bad things can happen. So, Again, move forward at all three gates, shut down from all three gates. Um, let's see, what else? Um, pretty much, I'd say just basic desensitizing, basic groundwork. You need to have that emergency shut button working for you. Um, and to me, I've done my homework correctly when that horse stands perfectly still for that first saddling. If they are moving around and it's more than a few steps and they're really starting to panic before I've even gotten the saddle blanket on, that tells me, okay, nope, we're not saddling today. We have more things to work through. So, and I have no problem. I've, I've had times where I thought we were ready and it was too much. And so, nope, we, we need to go back to, uh, you know, back to our groundwork and make sure, you know, I want that horse to stand really still and really relaxed because, um, you know, I need time to adjust those girths properly and make sure that saddle's fitting. And if he's kind of moving sideways and stuff, it's going to be really difficult for me to sling that saddle on him and get my girths, you know, 
all my girth's done and stuff. Mm-hmm. I'd say the final thing that you want to make sure, um, and I'd say this applies a lot to Mustangs, is I will do a lot of work with their feet and legs. Um, and it doesn't sound like it's related, but I will I will do some work with, with the ropes around their legs, make sure I can pick up their legs with a lead rope or a lariat, um, you know, touch their legs with... Uh, uh, you know, with different objects, uh, you know, rope, stick, flag, my hands. And the reason I say that is I think that takes a lot of a horse's desire to kick out um, away from them. And, you know, I, I think it's just another good thing to do to them mentally before that first saddling. They need it done anyway. Um, and, uh yeah, I, I would say that's a pretty good list of, of things to check off. But, you know, your horse is going to tell you. If they're moving around and they don't look right when you saddle them, don't saddle. Go back and work on some more stuff. So what might I look for? What are some of the subtle indications that my horse is being still, but he's being still because he's shut down versus being still because he's like, oh, I'm cool with that? What, what, what Great question. Um, so this can be really hard to spot. Um, but what I've learned to do in the last uh, few years is while I'm desensitizing my horse, there are a couple things I do differently than I used to. Um, one is let's say I'm desensitizing my horse to something that's pretty scary to him. Either Usually the flag can be pretty frightening in the, initially. So m- let's say my horse learns to stand still while I touch him with a flag all over, wave the flag all over. Um, I, they have, they really can shut down doing that. And you look at them and they look totally fine and they're not moving. Um, but really they've just turned off and kind of gone onto screensaver mode and that then they can come back and surprise you because they're standing still and you're like, great, now I'm going to saddle you. And then all of a sudden they wake up while you're doing the cinch up and they're like, I am not okay with this. So in order to prevent that, I will do a little flagging with the horse and, you know, when they're standing still and that's great. And then immediately, like as I release the flag, I'm going to yield that horse's hindquarters and loosen his feet up a little bit. And I just, I call it untracking. I just want to untrack those hindquarters and just say, hey, you know, you've been really still like a statue. Your knees are kind of locked. Move your feet around again. And I'll just kind of, I'll do that every so often as I'm desensitizing. The other thing that I have really changed that I used to not um, do is I used to only release if my horse is perfectly still. And um, I wouldn't, you know, if they were moving around, even just walking some gentle steps, I would just keep going until they stand perfectly still. Now, I actually don't mind if, you know, as long as it's of a controlled sort of disengaging the hindquarters way, I will let them move a few steps. I'm not a stickler about that because to me, that means they're still kind of engaged in the situation. And if I'm saddling a horse and they're kind of, you know, the, the hind feet may be walking around a couple of steps, I can still very much control that situation. We're still okay. Um, so again, I'll desensitize them and untrack them like every few, every few minutes just to make sure, Hey, are you awake? Are you with us? The other thing I do is I don't simply wait for them to stand still to release pressure, um, when I am desensitizing. So let's say I'm waving the flag around 
and the horse stands still. I might release a couple of times when they first stop moving their feet to let them know, hey, you're on the right track. But what I'm eventually going to do is say, okay, I love that your feet are standing still, but I'm just going to keep waving this flag around and I want to see something else from you. Something that lets me know you're here, you're with me, and you're starting to relax and accept. So things that I would look for is if they lower their head, um, if they kind of blow some air out or they look and chew um, or even if they just kind of take some gentle steps, just you can tell when they're sort of releasing tension. Those are signs I'm looking for. If they're standing still and their neck is really short and their pole is kind of high. I know that they're just trying to get through and they're trying to survive. They're not in trouble for that. But I want to make sure, okay, you're in a spot right now where you're just trying to figure it out, but you're not in the, you know, you're not relaxed yet. So I just keep going and going and I'm real rhythmic and I'm real gentle with it. And then when I see them just kind of go, you know, just let that air out. You'll see them release tension in their body, cock a hind leg, lower that head, blow some, you know, blow some air out of their nostrils, lick and chew, then I'll release. And that kind of lets me know, all right, you know, you've stopped moving your feet, but you've gone past the I'm just going to stand still and take it mode and you're okay. And those are, those are the areas where I'm going to release. Um, some other things you might do in between doing some desensitizing is I might desensitize them and then just lightly flex their head one way or the other, just keep them engaged. Um, so that's how you can kind of prevent being in this shutdown mode. And I do this a lot when I mount a horse for the first time, I will get halfway on the horse and then jump down and then I will untrack their hindquarters. And I'm like, move your feet. You know, you're here. I'm, you're not ignoring me. You know, we're in this moment now. Don't shut down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause you, you don't want them in the, I'm going to be very, very still like a bunny rabbit so that you don't see me. You need to yeah. be still like, I'm just going to stand here because it's so boring. <laughs> you know, yeah so yeah. not worth working hard to get away um yeah i think that's good because it's so easy to assume that still especially if you're because when you're working with a horse there's a certain amount of stillness that's important but there's also um controlled movement is just as important because controlled movement is what keeps you from having those explosions so to work both sides of the equation is, is key. Yeah. And that, that's another thing I think is really underlooked in desensitizing is I do a ton of desensitizing. And this is also, this will also fall under the checklist for saddling. I do desensitizing while their feet are moving because, um, when our horse does things that make us fall on the ground, how often it doesn't happen when they're perfectly still. It has happened to me once, which was really embarrassing, but that's not the normal. <laughs> um, usually it's when their feet are moving and there's a difference between the horse standing still and accepting something that's moving and making noise around them. And um, when the horse's feet are moving because they're a flight animal they're in, you know, sometimes if their feet are already in motion and something scary happens, they're already halfway to running off because they're moving. So they'll just speed up. Um, so, uh, when my, I'm getting my horse to walk, trot and canter around me, I will also use my flag and kind of gently wave around. I will touch them with the flag as they're going around. I might throw the end of my lead rope at at them as they're going around. So that just kind of prepares them. Hey, the saddle's going to be on you. 
then when you start moving, that saddle is going to move with you and those stirrups are going to flap. Um, you know, I just want you to know you can't completely, completely prepare them to be perfectly fine with the first saddling. Um, but you can let them know as you're doing groundwork, hey, something like this is going to happen in the future. I just want to see how you're going to do with it. There you go. Perfect. All right. What's our next question? Okay. So this actually ties right into what we were talking about with the shutdown horse. So this one's from Danielle and she says, how do you personally, meaning me, reach a shutdown horse? So this, I would assume, is a horse that's sort of chronically shut down, um, not just in the moment. You get this horse in for training and I've had more than a few of these where they just seem like they're inside themselves and you try to encourage them or you try to use pressure to get them to move and they might do it, but they're just, they're not really there and they can be, you know, difficult to encourage and motivate. And, um, personally, my favorite way is through positive reinforcement training. Um, so the example I'll use is Dougal. He's this big, burly, drafty Mustang that uh, I got for one of the makeovers. Um, I did not compete in the makeover with him as I was riding him, but I didn't think he was re really ready. So I kept him. And um, I don't necessarily think anything happened to him to cause him to shut down. It, you know, it wasn't like he was in a training situation where someone had used way too much force or pressure. Um, you know, he did go through the stress of getting gathered and hauling across the country. So I'm sure that contributed to it. But he, you know, I'd ask him to do something and just he would go from no reaction. But if something really scared him, he would react in a very big and scary and airborne way. Um, so like to just get him, you know, he's the horse I was talking about earlier. Like I had to get him to just lean back before I could get a backup. And same thing with the trot. Um, you know, I could get him to trot, but it took a lot. Just like I said, me jumping up and down and waving things and, um, and I could only get a few steps and then that was it. And so I started clicker training him and um, I got him used to taking food out of my hand and I started target training, which is the first lesson I teach where you teach the horse to touch a target and then you click and you treat. It's the first lesson I teach because it's very easy for them to get the point of and it's a very great way to teach them the mechanics of clicker training. You do this simple task, you hear the marker signal, that means food's coming and it's the base for where I can start doing my um, more complex exercises. And with Dougal, I could kind of get him to nudge the target. Like I almost had to mush it on his nose to get him <laughs> to touch it. And then I even had to like shove the, like open his mouth and put the food in there. And he would eat it. Like I knew he liked it. One, I don't think it was that he didn't like the food, but he just, he was like, I don't care. Like, okay. And I just kept doing it every day and it, it was weeks and I thought, am I, is, is anything happening? Are we doing anything with this? Cause most horses, especially domestics who are, are used to having had treats and they like treats, you teach them the target game and they're like, oh my God, this is a thing we can do. And they get so excited and they hear the click and they're like, yes, what do I need to do to hear more clicks? Dougal, he didn't care. He put up with me. But slowly over time, 
I started to see a change. All of a sudden, things became easier. He not only started to touch the target on his own, but he would actually like walk a few steps to touch it if I put it a distance in front of him. So, you know, he started following the target um, and then he started picking up the trot. And then I think the most magical thing I noticed is when I would walk near his turnout pin, he started nickering at me every time he saw me. And to me, with a horse that was so just not there and not interested and not about anything I wanted him to do, when he started seeing me and he was nickering, I was like, oh my God, you know, you love me. <laughs> um, really, he just really wanted to play the game. And um, I would walk into the turnout to get another horse to work with. And he would start showing me things. He's like, hey, remember how we worked on the backup? And he'd start backing up or he would start like picking up a trot near me. And to me, oh, it was so awesome. I was so happy to see it. That was a clear indication of, I remember what we worked on and I really want to do it again. And so I think uh, clicker training, again, for me personally, is the best way I've seen profound results on horses that were really just kind of not not really with it. And it takes a long time. Even if you don't clicker train, I think subtle repetition, be very patient, reward the tiniest amount of try you see in that horse. Um, if you're not using positive reinforcement and food rewards, give them a big break, scratch them on the neck. Even if you don't think it's getting through, just anytime you see any amount of try in that horse, let them know they did a good job. Maybe your sessions are five minutes long, but they did something really good. Put them away, let them go be with their friends and you will start to see change over time. Perfect. We're going to end there because Mary has a terrible cold and she's she's just about ready to, ha to hack up along. For people who want to appropriately stalk you online, ask you questions about training, hire you to train their horse, ask you to come and do a clinic at their farm, etc., where are they going to find you? You can find me on Facebook at Mary Kitzmiller Horsemanship, and that's probably the, the best way to get a hold of me. Just send me a message and I will get back to you as soon as I can. 